Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we do have two event series. The first one focuses on big data and data science. It's called Strata Data Conference, and you can find that at strataconf.com. The second conference focuses on AI. It's called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. In today's episode, I sat down with Lucas Bewald, co-founder and chief data scientist of Crowdflower. As you recall, in the previous episode, we covered how the rise of deep learning is fueling the need for large data labeled data sets and high-performance computing systems. In today's episode, our focus is on how you create these large labeled data sets. And coincidentally, Crowdflower is one of the leading services helping many of the companies that you're familiar with in uh, putting together these uh, labeled data sets for large-scale deep learning systems. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Lucas Bewald, founder of Crowdflower, welcome to The Data Show. Thanks, Ben. So you've had a uh, long career in, uh, I would say, data preparation, data cleaning, and active learning, so the the use of both machine learning and humans to do uh, data preparation. But now, of course, we're in the age of the deep learning. And uh, as I point out to people, right, so deep learning is really brings us to the age of big data plus big models plus big compute, but uh, without big labeled data, you can't, <laughs> you can't get started. So how does what you do uh, change in the age of deep learning? That's a good question. Um, it's a question my, my board's always asking me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, for Crowdflower specifically, um, uh, deep learning has been fantastic because it it lets companies use even more training data, and and we're really in the business of getting people training data. So, you know, I guess I, I view deep learning not as like this kind of like revolutionary change, but sort of an extension of um, of machine learning. We're kind of all the things that were good about machine learning, it's even better. And all the things that were hard are even harder, right? So it's even harder to figure out what the models are doing. And to make it work, um, you typically need even more training data. So, you know, in the past, um, you know, our customers would typically, you know, ask for hundreds of thousands or, or millions of records in their their training data sets. And then we started noticing deep learning because we started having customers that would ask for tens of millions of data rows or collect tens of millions of data rows right off the bat. And um, we, you know, I remember the sales team being like, whoa, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? Why, why do these people want so much so what, um, uh, what, labeled uh, data? Put, put that in the context in terms of time frame. So when did you guys start noticing this? Well, you know, I think we started to see it uh, two or three years ago. And there's kind of two things that happened, right? So um, one was that suddenly people were doing a lot more image collection. So in the early days of Crowdflower, we were almost all text labeling, almost all text applications. And it's probably maybe like, you know, 5% image labeling. And I actually remember the first guys that really started to do a lot of image labeling was um, Skybox Imaging, the satellite vision company. And they really pushed us to improve our image collection tool. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to be just Skybox or, you know, how many satellite companies could there really be? And then what are the other applications? And there's actually a fair amount of debate internally how much to invest in the image labeling tool. But, uh, you know, I would say in the last six months, probably more than half of the new users on our platform are doing image labeling. And we're starting to see quite a lot of video labeling. So it's clearly a huge change in the types of machine learning that, that folks are doing. 
So does the uh, does the workflow change? Because uh, way back uh, when we did this really uh, popular webcast where you laid out you know the best practices for doing active learning. Uh, so does any of those uh, tips do any of those tips carry over, or do you have to adjust them for deep learning? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that are different. One thing is that those tips are now even more extreme, right? Because if you're spending a hundred thousand dollars on your your training data. I think some companies, not not any startup, but bigger companies, it might be fair to say we don't need to make the investment to be smart in our data collection process. Let's just kind of throw money at the problem and hey, it's only $100,000. So we don't want to do any kind of fancy active learning here. I would, I would totally disagree with that, but I think you can kind of see the sense of it. But when companies are spending millions or more dollars on training data, it's absolutely essential that they do it in a smart way. And, and yeah, active learning that, is the, that, that's insane, the best though, thing to do. When you put to, it that way, they're spending to, millions of dollars on training data. Yeah, yeah. No, they really are. And I would say all the big companies are spending millions of dollars on collecting training data. Not necessarily with Crowdflower, but many of them. And listeners, you can uh, use your imagination to think of which, these company, or which of these companies might be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we post a lot of them on our website, too. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing active learning on a very large scale on images, so I'm I'm assuming a a lot of this is, has to do with object detection, right? Well, that's a that's a recent trend. So I think in like specifically when you're when you're talking about images, there's a real role that the the algorithms can play in terms of helping the humans be more efficient. So you know the best example is a lot of companies these days want to do what they call image segmentation. So that's where you want to literally label every single pixel. In an image, and and the most common use case is, for example, label every pedestrian, right? So you look at a photo, you know, probably it's a self-driving car, <laughs> you know, what what it's seeing in its in its dashboard camera, and you want to pick out which pixels correspond to pedestrians, which pixels correspond to roads, which pixels correspond to sidewalk, and so on. And if you don't make any, if you just have someone open up Photoshop and try to do that, you can imagine that that labeling process can take over an hour, and that that really is the state of the art. I mean, we find customers that literally are doing that. They they buy a bunch of Photoshop licenses and they have an army of interns just opening up the photos in, in Photoshop and, and, and putting masks on them uh, to get the labeled data. And you can imagine that the cost of that quickly adds up, right? So the first thing you can do, which, which I think everyone should do, is you can try to group the pixels into chunks, right? So you know, Photoshop has a magic wand tool for, for editing where it tries to figure out what are kind of continuous blocks of pixels. But you can actually pre-segment those blocks into chunks. It's a thing called super pixels. Um, and that makes people a lot more efficient. But then actually the, the best thing you can do is make a guess with your tool. So if you put in what the tool has already labeled as pedestrian pixels, that means that if your algorithm is reasonably good, it will do a lot of the labeling for the person. So it can, it can really cut down the labeling time from over an hour to a couple minutes. And, and that's a huge deal, right? So that's, that'll shrink your labeling costs by an order of magnitude or more. It still seems like a complex task, huh? Yeah, it's a really complex task. And, th and there's a lot of details um, to get right in, in exactly how you set that up. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I just really encourage everyone to do um, to do active learning. And I think there's no place where it's like more obvious than in images, except actually, as I say that, you know, the, the place where it's it's completely essential, like it's just a non-starter to not use it is, is video labeling. Right. Because in that, it's like no one is going to go through every frame right, right, right. <laughs> and label where the car is. Right. So you, you have to make a guess about where you're putting bounding boxes or where you're putting pixels um, or you're just never going to get enough uh, training data. So, so I guess uh, the, a question that people might ask you is uh, if you're using active learning, so then is the algorithm deep learning? 
Yeah, I think I think those two are are kind of orthogonal um, strategies, right? So active learning is kind of a way of generating training data for your algorithm, and then deep learning is a technique for no, no, learning thought, an algorithm. I, I, they, I thought that active learning in many ways was uh, deciding uh, what to send to a machine. Uh, what to send right, to a right, human? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. So then, yeah, yeah, yeah. so well, then what, the, the the mechanism to make the decision is it deep learning? It could be. I mean, you can use active learning with things that we wouldn't call deep learning, like you know, support vector machines right, 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 or right. logistic regression. But you know, I think I think especially if you're doing deep learning, because deep learning is so hungry for training data, it, almost certainly you'll benefit from from using active learning. And and deep learning tends to be quite good at assessing confidence. But so, um, you know, if, if, if you're using a deep learning algorithm, it'll naturally be passing back confidence values that you can use. And you can basically pick the examples where, I mean, the first, the, the easiest thing to do, which is very effective, is pick the things with the lowest confidence values and, and get those labeled. So then you're doing active learning and deep learning. So you're hitting all the O'Reilly buzzwords. <laughs> right, 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 right. What about, so so you mentioned video. So uh-huh. video then, uh, you're, you said something along the lines that you have to make a guess. You really do, right? So imagine the simplest thing folks want to do in video is object tracking, right? So, you know, going back to the self-driving car example, imagine you have a pedestrian and they're walking around and you want to continuously put a bounding box around that uh, pedestrian. Well, you're not going to go into every frame and put a box around the pedestrian, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you probably, yeah. you know what I mean? Like you probably should just put, um, what, what we do in our but, tools. But, you- but, but then, but then uh, if a human is doing the labeling of the bounding box, they know that the, this pedestrian has to adhere to the laws of physics. They're not right. just going to disappear. Right, exactly. Right? So you can fast well, forward. They, they might go behind something, but it's unusual for them to disappear, right? Like that, that's why, you know, you, you have the human because, you know, you have to, you know, the machine does make mistakes and, and funky things happen, but you really shouldn't. In, in normally, like frame to frame, the human's not going to teleport. <laughs> you know, the human's not going to do anything right, right. crazy, right? So, so what you do is you kind of just have the person, the human, the expensive human annotator label kind of the key frames where something's um, changing. And then you, um, you can interpolate between the frames in smart ways. So the frames that the human hasn't labeled, you say, okay, if the pedestrian's here in frame 20 and here in frame zero, you can, you can, I mean, the simplest thing you can do is kind of just interpolate that they've probably smoothly moved um, between the frames. And then the human can kind of keep going in and cleaning up and refining the data, which will make your algorithm better and better. So you, so you, uh, the things you're describing are computer vision. So what's happened to what, uh, unstructured text? Is that still a big part of what you guys do? Yeah, I mean, that was, that's kind of our bread and butter, you know, that we started the business on. And it's still by far the majority of um, the work that gets done on the platform. But the new stuff happening on the platform is actually more um, image and video these days. So, you know, it's rapidly changing. But it's not like it's going away. It's just it's just kind of being augmented with a... Is text also, your, is text also uh, the types of projects you do on text, you're starting to see deep learning there too? Yeah, you know, I mean, our customers don't always... Um, tell us the algorithms that they're using in the in the back end but um you know we talk to them a fair amount and we're starting to see um we're starting to see quite a lot of deep learning um in fact uh my my friends at google were telling me that they use deep learning for for a huge fraction of the the text work they do so that that made me feel that um we're rapidly moving towards um deep learning based text classification um and and we are seeing more ambitious but then you're talking about uh, that's good for you because then they'll need a lot of <laughs> yeah labeled labeled example for sure yeah yeah and, and i mean I think you know you have the the kind of the various word to vec um 
you know, models being released by by lots of different companies is is really kind of pushing things. I saw, you know, Facebook just released a new, you know, sort of the the text equivalent of image of um image net models. And and so I think, you know, I, I think I think that stuff is pretty exciting too. You know, the one thing that uh, I, I don't know if you guys do this, but one of the things that I've always wondered is uh so we've tackled basically text and uh, vision, but really a lot of uh, information is buried in audio, right? So from uh, YouTube videos to podcasts, but yeah. then but then when you do the uh, the transcription, the the speech to text, that's usually not very good, right? So, so a human has to clean that up somehow. Um, yep. And also natural language understanding for speech is a, a whole a whole different ball of wax. Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of people would 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 point out that um, the people who are really using neural nets and and kind of what we call deep learning these days, I think the people that were doing it the most um, four or five years ago were was in audio. So I think yeah, audio yeah, actually really speech, drove right. The, yeah, 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 yeah. If you look back to the breakthroughs, the resurgence of deep learning, uh, it was vision and speech. Right, right. But somehow, but somehow, uh, I I still don't have a tool where I can search troves of podcasts, for example. Right, right, right. Well, uh, you know, I think that's coming. I mean, I think um, I think audio to text is is rapidly getting a lot better. I th- I think one issue, you know, that I've heard from my friends and and customers that work on audio is if you um, you know, if you speak to your phone and you know that your phone is a computer, you actually speak a lot more clearly. So, you know, when we talk to Siri or we talk to um, a thing that we know is doing automated transcription, we actually speak way more clearly than if we talk to our friend or <laughs> probably if we talk on a podcast. So, um, you know, I think it actually like transcribing um, third party audio is, is significantly um, harder. But did you see, I, I was seeing that uh, someone's working on a hearing aid that can pick out. Yeah, yeah I just uh, saw that. Yeah. Voice. That seems super cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. A lot of, a lot of cool stuff going on in audio. So there's a uh, research initiative by some friends of mine at Stanford led by Chris Ray, who uh, is a MacArthur Genius Awardee and also co-founder of a company I advise called Lattice Data. Uh, they have a initiative called data programming. So here's how I would describe it, right? So crowdsourcing, you have a large number of human labor labelers, and each labor, labeler is uh, uh, assigning labels to a small subset of data. So in their case, data programming, they think of it as kind of somewhat flipped. You have a small set of scripts or labeling functions, and each of those scripts is is labeling a large portion of the data set. And uh, the labeling functions are simple programs. You can train a domain expert to write them. And then in, in many ways, they kind of follow some of the best practices you described before when we did that webcast for crowd uh, for active learning which is you know you you take a bunch of scripts there's a way for them to uh, collaborate they're somewhat correlated so then there's some voting going on and so on and so forth i don't know it seems like a promising way to scale data labeling even more totally i'm totally interested in, in that stuff and i should say you know lattice data is a, a crowdflower customer so i think the strategies certainly overlap right so you know i don't know exactly about about uh you know i think different use cases require different strategies like that like the the problem with with trying to use experts to build scripts is kind of every domain needs a slightly different strategy but if your domain is deep enough then if you can if you can generate massive amounts of training data cheaply then you know by all means you should definitely definitely do it 
I guess the philosophy there is that uh, it's augmentation. You're not going to, you're not removing the need for experts. You're just augmenting them somehow. Totally, totally. And I think one of the really, one of the really wonderful things about, and I, and I actually think that the biggest thing that's kind of coming in terms of, um, you know, machine learning hype is the way that uh, the sort of transfer learning, or the way that you can take a model trained in one domain and then with a small amount of extra data, you know, put it in a in a different domain and you know, neural nets are particularly good at this type of thing. Doesn't that describe ninety percent of the people who do deep learning? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> they, but I think, they, I think they, the, they, they just take ResNet or Inception and then they start using it on something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I, I would just I would remove the just from that description. I mean, you know, it's and I think like without actually ResNet or or VGG or, or you know one of these these um models, these these applications really wouldn't wouldn't work that well. So. Uh, you know, I think, and then I actually think, you know, that's why I think like WordTivec is so exciting in in the text domain. And I think when you get one of these like, you know, really good, really like train uh, one of these models trained on massive amounts of data, people can use transfer learning to put it in all kinds of new domains um, or related related domains. And I, I think it's actually really exciting and pushing a lot of the innovation. But then but I think many, so in many ways, though, uh, you can think of what uh, when you have uh, people doing uh, uh, computer vision tasks for you. You can think of them as somewhat of experts, right? So maybe not yeah. not domain experts, but uh, over time they develop expertise, right? So totally, totally, yeah. And so then uh, you can imagine down the road that you will empower them even more by giving them the ability to write small scripts, and then they can tackle larger troves of data. Yeah, well, you know, in a way, like scripting is you can think of it as as just a really powerful um, type of annotation tool, right? So you know, we try to make our UI. We, we try to design our UI so that people can annotate things as fast as possible. So, you know, that's why we, we put in super pixels in our image labeling. We put in, you know, interpolation between boxes in our video labeling. That's why we do all those things to make people faster. And so I could totally imagine a world where we're giving the annotators um, scripts to, to, to be even faster. I just, you know, the, the, the different scripts, you know, can be very um, domain specific. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... Based on what you've described, it sounds like one uh, uh, big segment of uh, or one's area where a lot of people are doing uh, uh, the kinds of things that require a service like Crowdflower, self-driving cars. So what other verticals are you seeing a lot of activity? Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure what you call the vertical, but, but drones and um, satellites has been a huge area of growth for us. We're also starting to see applications in manufacturing. So, you know, it's it's. I think the the area where robots or, or where where machine learning is kind of the most behind sort of an average human is is in grasping. So, you know, figuring out where um, a robot should should pick up a cup or something like that. Um, I mean, it's it's really funny because it seems so simple to us, but when you actually try to try to label it, you realize this is a pretty complicated um, vision task. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I was joking with a friend of mine the other day in the sense that. You know, some of these simple tasks are actually harder to automate than than the the higher up you go up the uh, corporation, the, totally. the easier it is to the easier it is to automate, right? <laughs> so the way I describe it, right? So you think of the data pipeline from ingestion all the way to the uh, final report that you give to the CEO. Well, uh-huh. by the time you get to the final report, you've got <laughs> like a you got like a very super clean data with dashboards and stuff. Maybe you just use an AI at that. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, it's kind of amazing. I, I was thinking um, 
I was joking with my friend, you know, the, I'm, I'm a big fan of Go and, and I was really excited to see that AlphaGo win. I'm not sure that if, uh, if, if AlphaGo had actually had to put those little ghost stones on the board <laughs> in the right place, then right. it would have been able to right. do that. <laughs> so, so let's uh, do a digression here and talk a little bit about Go because I know you're like a super uh, fanatical Go player, but uh, what is the state now? So is it the same as when uh, Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov in the sense that, okay, the humans have thrown in the towel? Yeah, I mean, I think that basically the humans have, have thrown in the towel for sure. Um, I, I think one thing that I'm really waiting for, and I was actually, I was bugging some of the folks that worked on uh, AlphaGo, um, is, you know, I think chess actually had kind of like a revolution in theory a few years after the, the computer got better because experts were using the computers to figure out new things. And I think in a way, you know, Go um, Go opening theory is is even less um, agreed on. There's less consensus than chess. And so, you know, as a as a Go um, fanatic, I keep waiting for um, you know AlphaGo or someone else to kind of put out what is the new information that we've learned about Go from from running these um, these computers on, and then and, and sort of simulating. Um, Data. You know, you know how Gary Kasparov, uh, right after that, he started running these open chess tournaments where it's a free for all, uh-huh. human, yeah. human only, human plus machine or machine only, and it's always human plus machine that wins. Right, right. So is that what's going to happen in Go? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it. You know, I think in chess. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was also telling my friend this. So I, I, you know, I was a big chess fan as a kid, and I remember watching Deep Blue, and uh, you know. Back then, the the chess algorithm was so different from the human algorithm. Right? It was just look really deeply and um, you know estimate the score very fast, but but look way deeper than a human, but with less intuition. And so the chess programs actually played very different from from humans. But with Go, I mean, the the thing that was really striking about watching AlphaGo play is it was actually trained on lots of humans games, right? So it, it learned from watching thousands and thousands of expert players play. And so it looked very human. So, you know, I think humans could kind of help root out some of the mistakes that it's still making because it still makes some bizarre moves from from time to time. Like in game four, I think it was, it made a, a, a bizarre blunder. But I think um, I think that AlphaGo looks much more human to me. I mean, it looks like just like a very, very good human than... You think that... Uh... If you were to run a free-for-all tournament, machine only might still win. It might win, yeah. I mean, I, I hope someone does it. I, I would be, um, <laughs> I would watch that with rapt attention. But I'm sure, you know. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a five-don amateur, and I have, I have nothing to offer AlphaGo. <laughs> I would just no, no. Take um, I AlphaGo's thought that the, <laughs> I, I thought in chess. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought the chess, the situation is you can take not, not you know, uh. A good player, but not maybe one of the best in a, a good computer program, and they would beat a a supercomputer chess program. Yeah, you know, totally. So I, but actually, um, it's funny. You know, I, I use that example in my talks um, for for years, but I think it actually changed last year. Um, so my, oh, my so friend what, was telling me the, that that actually chess programs have gotten so good that the humans only screwed up on average. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I, mean, really? I think that was true for a good twenty years, but I think at this point, sadly, uh, I think. The computers have just have just won. Wow! <laughs> All right, so uh, let's uh, let's close this by uh, talking about some some of the side projects that you started writing about for us, <laughs> yeah. which have been uh, great articles. So deep learning, basically, uh, 
hacker project. So first of all, uh, how did you get started? Was it mostly because you started seeing uh, more and more customer work in deep learning and you said, oh, I, maybe I should go in and try this myself? It kind of was, you know, so, I, you know, I, I um, you know, I did... I built machine learning algorithms at um, at Yahoo and some startups and and Stanford and and I um I hadn't actually gotten a chance to build models in in um you know five or six years and I love you know I love doing um, machine learning I mean you know founding Crowdflower I didn't get a chance to do it that much but um, I actually think building machine learning models is one of the funnest things uh, anyone <laughs> can do it's almost like breathing life into the the robot you know and and so I got really excited when I saw a lot of our customers doing deep learning and so I wanted to um, to try out the new vision algorithms. And, and they're really amazing. I mean, they're so much better than the state-of-the-art in vision, you know, the last time I, I worked on this stuff. And, you know, I think like, you know, I, I think people often read sort of like, you know, revolutions into AI where really like what's happening is people are making steady progress. But if you don't do it hands-on for, for six years and you come back to the field, then you, you, you really see, wow, you know, things have gotten um, much, much better. I mean, computers are way faster, first of all. Data sets are much bigger. Um, but also the algorithm better. To be fair uh, to the listeners out there, uh, Lucas talks about it as if these projects are software only. But no, I mean he's in there soldering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a hardware, hardware, mostly a hardware project, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, the other thing that happened was I got I got married and bought a house, so I always wanted to have a, a shop in my um, garage. And I, I, you know, living in San Francisco, I just couldn't uh, couldn't afford that, you know, and, uh, and so. You know, I I um I remember you know, we bought the house and it had a garage. I, I I told my wife like, can we sell the car so I can I can build a shop in the basement? Um, and so then so then yeah, I could I could have like a soldering iron and what the so what's your what's your take in terms of the uh, what's the learning curve and how what's the barrier to entry to to doing the types of things that you did? Which is by the way, uh, so one one of the things you did was for example. Uh, doing computer vision, flying a drone and having it recognize objects uh, down below, speech recognition uh, with a robot, uh, and uh, most recently, a doorbell that recognizes who's outside, those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So what's uh, what's the learning curve and how how hard is it to get going on these things? You know, I really don't think it's that hard to get going. I mean, you know, I have a ten-year-old uh, half sister that I was. She was visiting me, and I was showing her how to how to do this stuff, and and she was jumping right in and and doing it. So I, I think, um, you know, parts are hard and parts are are easy. But you know, if you're if you're willing to um, sit there and fight with it, <laughs> you can you can get really really far. Um, so you're talking embedded systems here, man. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the thing is, like Raspberry Pis are are so easy and fun. I mean. I think that's a big change, actually. Like, you know, you buy a $30 Raspberry Pi. I mean, now there's like a $10 version. But, you you know, the, the $30 version that's available now, I mean, it's got Wi-Fi enabled. I mean, it's like as good as my laptop from like six, seven years ago. And so you got all the familiar um, computer components, and then it's got a bunch of uh, wires sticking out of it. So, you know, you don't even need the solder. You could just take some jumper jumper wires and, and plug it into something. And and, and, and then the computer, uh, the computer, the deep learning framework folks have made sure that their their stuff runs in all sorts of uh, systems, including uh, embedded and mobile, right? Yeah, well, I think I take some credit for that. So I was bugging my friend Pete Warden at, uh, at Google about, um, you know, trying to get trying to get TensorFlow running on a Raspberry Pi and and you know he jumped right in there and and helped and actually he um he made a version of uh TensorFlow that you know you can compile right into a um right into a Pi and run it. And so he I mean, you know, I feel like he worked nights and weekends to make sure that thing um worked fast. But if you look at the core uh TensorFlow distribution, 
um, you can see that there's um, Raspberry Pi examples uh, built right into it. So, um, you know, it, it, it really works uh, out of the box. I mean, it takes forever to compile. <laughs> But the other thing you demonstrated, actually, is uh, you can take uh, one of these uh, IoT or mobile devices and, uh, and use them and then just use the cloud to do all yeah, of your uh, totally. deep learning, right? Yeah, so. yeah. So, I mean, that's a, I'm surprised more people don't do this. So, you know, and Microsoft um, Azure has some just, like, fantastic um, APIs. I think they were kind of the first to put out a whole bunch of, like, face-recognizing um, you know, speech to text, all, all the kind of standard things. But then Google's put out some awesome ones. Amazon's got some great ones and they're all competing on price. So it's like practically free um, to, to do, um, you know, for example, I used Amazon's face recognition to do, um, to put face recognition on my doorbell. And I was thinking like, you know, can I just like let this run day and night? Is it going to cost me too much? But it's like, I mean, I think it's like, it's less than a cent per um, face detection that it does. So, you know, you could run it for years. It probably costs less than the electrical bill of having a, a camera in your front door. Wow. So then uh, this is relevant information in light of the recent revelations from WikiLeaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what my neighbors think about having a, a Raspberry Pi with a, <laughs> a camera with a little LED light in my front door. But <laughs> so, so let's close by having you kind of uh, uh, look ahead, let's say the next year, 2017 and through early 2018, uh, in terms of what you think... Uh, uh, you folks at Crowdflower will be doing in the area of uh, basically, I guess, what you guys are doing is really uh, supercharging AI people. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Because without without what you do, they they really can't get going. Yep, yep. So what what does the rest of 2017, 2018 f for you guys look like in terms of your offerings and the platform and uh, any kind of connection to AI and deep learning? Yeah, you know, I think for Crowdflower, um, the two big things that I think hold uh, machine learning back, one is lack of training data. So we want to make it easy for anyone to get training data in any domain. And, you know, I think that... Dude, 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 I lobby for audio and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But especially, I, I mean, I think, well, I, you know, we, we follow customer demand and <clears throat> I think that the, the emerging thing for, for 2017, 2018 is, is video, which includes audio. <laughs> if you can right, do video, right, right. then uh, you also have, uh, you know, you have audio working pretty well. So, oh, so you're, you're, you're starting to see this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just starting to, but, um, but you know, we're, we're, we're trying to improve our tools as fast as we can to make it it work well because it's clearly where things are so going. So for for do, for those of us who don't follow the space closely, so obviously the the obvious sources of of uh, this type of thing is YouTube and stuff. So who what are, what types of companies are working with video? Oh, I mean everybody works with video, right? Because everybody with the camera is is taking video now, right? So there's all the user generated content companies, but then there's even um, I mean there's actually quite a lot of medical applications, right? So you know medical devices will typically record video and i mean there's all kinds of like uh you know crazy applications like security cameras um you know quality control and manufacturing you know i, I think i think video is where where everything's going and, and i should say you know the other thing that that um you know since you you, you know tee that up so well for me about what crowdflare is doing and I'm, I'm so excited about it you know the other big piece is uh is human in the loop right it's just crucial right so yep, yep. you know i always want to tell people about human in the loop because you know i think people always think oh i need to get my machine learning perfect before i can use it and you know, if you if you have the humans do the twenty percent, that's hard. <laughs> you can ship machine learning algorithms way, way, way earlier. So any chance I get, I always want to put in a plug for for human the loop. Yeah, which you, you, you. Uh, the the last time I saw a demo, you guys were starting to put out an offering on this, right? Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. So we, the offering's out, and uh, and anyone can use it, and and lots of people do. I think I think if you look at almost any successful 
machine learning deployment, there's human loop in some so, shape. So let's take a step back. So when you say, let's say I, I'm in a company, I want to do machine learning, and I realize, uh, okay, so this might be better if I do human in the loop. Yep. So how do I then go to Crowdflower? So you, you set up a task, so someone labels what you want, right? And and you're going to need to do that for, for training data, right? So you use our interface to set up a training. Say, say it's like you want to label if support tickets are high priority or low priority, right? So you'd say, you know, here's what it means for a support ticket to be high priority. Here's what it means for it to be low priority. You collect some training data, you feed that into your algorithm. Okay, now you've now you got a pretty good algorithm. But, you know, probably if you're using state-of-the-art deep learning, it still makes mistakes 5% of the time, right? So, you, you know, it's you, you want to get rid of those 5% of mistakes. You can now take that same same little task that you built to generate um, training data, and you can use it on the, the back end, right? So in the cases where the algorithm has low confidence, you send it back to a human to get labeled. Now you have a super accurate system that you can deploy and, and use in production for mission-critical tasks. But then you also, by the way, are doing active learning, right? Because you can take the labels that you generate on the low-confidence output and feed those labels back into the algorithm as new training data, which is the, the perfect data to make the algorithm get better over time. So it's really a win-win thing that, but, that everyone but the should point, be doing. The, the point is, if you were to set this workflow up on your own, it's 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 a bit awkward, right? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to do. I mean, I think Crowdflower is, is experts on it. But I, I have to say, I encourage people to do this. I mean, I obviously love if people use uh, Crowdflower, but I think the design pattern is so powerful that I hope everybody uh, everybody uses it because I think it'll it'll help machine learning adoption. So actually, you brought up an example which uh, reminds me of one area where I think uh, deep learning may struggle, which is in these really kind of uh, complicated and complex conversations. So kind of the things that uh, are behind kind of this chatbot hype yep. kind of thing. But uh, so I, I imagine uh, you, you folks have uh, a lot of work in this area as well. Yeah, we do a lot of work in chatbots these days. So what exactly do you do? Well, you know, typically the, 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 the task that we do with chatbots is help the chatbots understand the intention behind the task. So you know, the, the most basic thing that folks do in Crowdflower, if they have a chatbot, is they say, you know, here's a list of things that we think someone might be asking our chatbot, and then label the conversations for what the, the user of the chatbot is, uh, is talking about. I see, I see. And uh, and you're saying so this is an area of uh, where you're starting to see. Yeah, yeah, we um yeah we started to see chatbots um a year or two ago, and then you know seen quite a lot of um of hype. So so we've seen I mean we see literally chatbot companies work with us, but also companies that are developing chatbots internally um have have come to us to to get that kind of training data. Yeah, I think I think this is an area where I think uh, uh, deep learning may struggle a little bit because there's not enough context i guess they're starting to do memory Mm -hmm. but you know as the dialogue progresses it it becomes harder well i think it's tough too and i mean i think i think deep learning and, and kind of all forms of supervised learning they really only work in domains where you can think of how to generate training data and i think we don't quite know the best ways to generate training data for chatbots right i mean it's such you know conversations are so fluid you know you can label the intention but how do you label the way that you're supposed to respond to a query is a, you know, I think a perennial problem in, in question answering, but you know, people put a lot of thought into it. And, and I think actually chatbots is another domain where a human in the loop works super well. So what a lot of companies do is when the chatbot starts to get confused about what the person's asking, they immediately flip it over to a human operator. That's not the kind of human loop that Crowdflower does, but that's another example of the human loop design pattern that, that makes, you know, a partially competent uh, machine learning algorithm look 
like a flawless user experience to the customer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Well, this has been great. Lucas, I've been uh, trying to loop Lucas into speaking into the many, many conferences I organize. And uh, among other things, so there might be more to announce there. But at least in the short term, Lucas is committed to giving a keynote at Strata Beijing as well as a session. So we look forward to seeing Lucas in Beijing in July. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. You can follow Lucas Bewald on Twitter at L2K. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.